0: Cool. Looks like we're recording. <laughs> Hello listeners, my name is Andrew, and this is my co-host Rachel, and this is the podcast Alice Isn't Dead. Wait a minute. Wait. What? What? <laughs> no. Um, no, this is the podcast Armchair Apocrypha, and what are we doing here, Rachel?
1: Um, basically what we're doing here is we are going to each talk a little bit about something different each week that we know nothing about, but that we kind of learn and research about to learn more about not that we
0: know nothing about not that we know nothing about some things yeah sorry about that we're not studied yeah um stuff that we don't work in so i can't do anything with literature or higher education rachel can't do anything with what's your degree
1: communications communications
0: (laughs) so nothing with communications can't talk about
1: communicating
0: yeah um (laughs) (laughs) If you could slip a coffee podcast in there, that might I work.
1: would love to. Awesome. I'll find one. <laughs> I need to listen to one.
0: Right. Um, so uh, for these first few episodes, we're just going to uh, record a few normal episodes with me and Rachel, mm-hmm. um, and then I'm going to start reaching out to like uh, other people here. Um, we're in Louisville for people who don't know, so we're just going to... Reach out to armchair experts throughout the city mm-hmm. um, and start adding in new episodes. And then uh, our friend Mary, who was going to do the podcast from the beginning, she um, is in grad school, which I think is a awesome. really, really bad decision. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy for her. <laughs> but uh, once she finishes with grad school, really happy for will Once she she gets out of grad school, hopefully she'll be back. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what's your armchair expertise this week?
0: So we recorded an unofficial uh, pilot episode a few months ago, and it never went to air because we all got really busy and weren't able to record again. Um, And I had not done any research for the unofficial pilot, so I wanted to, like, redo it. And I came to the story through literature, but it's not a literary story. It's uh, the Mm -hmm. story of. Mm -hmm. It's not.
1: Okay. (laughs) It's not. I promise. I believe you. Uh,
0: It's the story of Sacco and Vanzetti, who were Italian-born anarchists living in Massachusetts, who um, a lot of people agree were wrongly convicted and executed. Um, And I came to them through Kurt Vonnegut who wrote about them in his uh, novel, Jailbird.
1: All right. Yeah. Tell me about these two Italians.
0: All right, cool. So it starts out with a crime, and we're going to begin uh, a little bit before we get to Sacco and Vanzetti um, on the night of December 24th, 1919.
1: Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. Was there snow? <laughs> Probably. <I don't> <laughs> Paint a picture for me, please.
0: <laughs> Um, So, on this night, there's an attempted shoe factory robbery in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Uh, And witnesses said that there were two Italian men who had attempted to rob the shoe factory for its payroll. Um, Our first character is going to be the police chief, Michael E. Stewart, who suspected Italian anarchists of the robbery attempt as a way to fund organizing and insurrectionary actions. Specifically, he suspected two men. You want to take a guess?
1: Two Italian men, two the Italian main men of our story? No.
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he uh, suspected Ferruc- Ferruccio Coacci. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. I was going to guess that next. Who was
0: awaiting deportation and Mario Mike Buddha. Mario, yeah. Buddha. I'm not sure how to pronounce <laughs> it's that.
1: It's Buddha. Yeah, okay.
0: I knew him. Cool. Um, so, four months later, there's a second uh, robbery. This time, another paymaster for a shoe company. This time in South Braintree, Massachusetts. And um, during the robbery, he and his uh, bodyguard are shot and killed.
1: Oh,
0: um, Yeah, brutal. <laughs> um, again, witnesses said that the robbers were two Italian men who managed to escape with a payroll and uh, boxes and a stolen Buick. And they made off with around fifteen thousand seven hundred and seventy dollars.
1: Back then? Back then. Oh my
0: god. Right? Um, Koachi had worked for both shoe companies that were robbed, and he owned a pistol similar to the one uh, used in the crime, and he had a car that resembled a Buick, which could have been the getaway vehicle. However, he was deported back to Italy on April 18th, about three days after the Braintree robbery and murder. With him gone, Stuart's suspicions moved on to Buddha or
1: Buddha. So just because that guy left, they're like, oh, well, can't prosecute him, so we'll go find someone else? Yeah, (laughs) right. Oh, well, he's left the country, so we'll try and find another suspect, not the one that's... Okay.
0: He was supposed to be deported on the night of the murder, and he Mm -hmm. was pushed back three days. Oh, shoot. So I don't know why they wouldn't just, like, oh, it was obviously him, he took the money and went back to Italy, but I'm not a policeman. Luckily. Not yet. (laughs) Um, He was uh, deported. Dang it. My notes went away. There they are. Uh, He was deported three days after the murder. Um, Stuart went after Budda, who was living with Koachi at the time. Um, Stuart tracked Budda to a garage at which he had left his car, one of the workers told him that Buddha had requested to be contacted if the police came looking for the car, which is not suspicious at all. No. No.
1: No.
0: Um, on May 5th, Mario Buda, uh, Ricardo Orchiani, and Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti returned to the garage to collect the car. I'm really sorry to all of our tie-in listeners <laughs> who are just swarming at me, <laughs> names, uh, but just bear with me a little okay. bit. Um, Michael Stewart and the Bridgewater police came, but Mario Buddha disappeared. Apparently they couldn't find him for about ten years, um, and he re-emerged in Italy.
1: Ah. Maybe took a long boat trip to Italy. Possibly. (laughs)
0: Um, That night, uh, Orchiani went home. He leaves our story. He's no longer a character. Um, But Sacco and Vanzetti are arrested while on a uh, streetcar, um, what ties these four men together is an insurrectionary anarchist who was active in America up until nineteen nineteen, and his name is Luigi Galliani.
1: So we have a Luigi and a Mario. Yes, oh, I love it. <laughs> I swear that's not all I'm taking from this.
0: <laughs> um, so he uh, he was deported in nineteen nineteen before the crimes. Uh, He ran a newspaper uh, in which he taught people how to uh, build bombs, Hmm. and uh, he advocated for the overthrow of the United States government, Hmm. Um, and so under the Sedition Act and the Immigration Act, he was deported. He had to leave? Yeah. Politely escorted up.
1: Politely shoot off.
0: (laughs) One important thing to note here is that his newspaper may have inspired the June 2nd bombings, which targeted politicians, police, public officials, and businessmen. Mm. Um, Buddha, Orchiani, Sacco, and Vanzetti are all believed to be followers of Galliani. Uh, So Sacco and Vanzetti get arrested and uh, Vanzetti gets tried for the Bridgewater crime. They couldn't uh, try Sacco because he had an airtight alibi because he was working that day, and they went and checked his punch card. Um, obviously, he was at work, yeah. but Vanzetti was a fishmonger, meaning he sold fish um, and was self-employed and did not have oh a boss God. who could yeah, vouch. Uh, vouch for him. Um, so he had to vouch for his own where, whereabouts, but uh, the defense was able to call in They didn't have any
1: security cameras there watching to make sure he said where
0: he said he was. I mean, it's 1919. You'd
1: think they would, right? Yeah. That's very popular. (laughs)
0: Um, So the defense was able to find dozens of witnesses to vouch for his alibi, stating that they had purchased fish or eels from him on that day. Um, The trial was, in short, a hot mess. (laughs) Uh, The witnesses for the prosecution... uh, Identified Vanzetti, but their testimony was marred by inaccuracies and inconsistencies. Uh, one of the weirder things that I saw on Wikipedia was that two witnesses got into an argument about the length of Vanzetti's beard.
1: Oh my gosh. Right. Where the, oh. <laughs> Unless it was like clean shaven or like Santa Claus, I don't know why you'd argue about the length of beard. Well,
0: I think that he had like uh, a gentleman, like dapper mustache oh my gosh, or yes. goatee or something.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so the witnesses were like, "Well, it was like close shave. No, it was longer. No, it was like, oh yeah." Um, the judge Webster Thayer had made anti-immigrant and specifically anti-Italian remarks. Mm-hmm. Um, Vanzetti believed that his consul was working for the prosecution, um, and it, his consul, in fact, uh, John P. Vehi, would later join the law firm of the prosecutor, who is Frederick Katzman. So, you've got a defense lawyer who goes to work for the prosecution. Doesn't ah, look good. Ah, yeah,
1: no, looks great. <laughs> <laughs> He'll prosecute um, the right people. Oh,
0: totally right. Uh, so the trial lasted from June 22nd, 1920 to July 1st, 1920. The jury deliberated for five hours, then returned a guilty verdict. Five hours? Five hours.
1: Hmm. I mean, I've never <laughs> been on a jury, but I don't know. Uh, yeah. I
0: have you? I think i been on one either. Okay. Like, uh, a few of my coworkers have, been and they're usually gone for a week. Yeah. Which is weird. But you
1: have to be, like, called into a specific, but I do know that some jury... Like, once you're in, they say, oh, it'll take two or so days. But those usually aren't murder cases. Right. It's like petty theft or something.
0: Yeah. So this is when um, Sacco and Vanzetti really start to be recognized internationally. Uh, The Sacco-Vanzetti Defense Committee is formed by other anarchists to raise money and awareness at the trial, um, and they're able to bring attention to socialists, anarchists, and left-adjacent intellectuals all over the world. These include John Dos Passos, who served on the defense committee and wrote an overview of the trial called Facing the Chair, The Story of Americanization of Two Foreign Born Workmen, um, which related readings, go ahead and pick that up and uh, read that if you want to know more. Um, It also attracted Dorothy Parker, Albert Einstein, HG Wells, Upton Sinclair, Haywood Brown, Malcolm Cowley, and Granville Hicks. And also surprisingly, Benito Mussolini.
1: Hmm. i Italian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that's why he did it. I think he was like, we can't have two Italian-Americans like execute it. That looks really bad for Italy, right? Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, that sounds about, that sounds accurate. Yeah. Historical I fact. <laughs> I don't think he
0: actually cared about them. I think he was like, I have are anarchist. But I think that he was like, this looks bad for Italy. Yeah. Um, with Fanzetti's conviction in the Bridgewater case, the prosecution moves on to the Braintree case, uh, Katzman, the prosecutor, Webster Thayer, the judge, return for the second case.
1: Is that normal?
0: I don't think so.
1: To have them, yeah. Because it's in a different area. Yeah. So, yeah. How is that allowed? I don't
0: know. I (laughs) think it's uh, corruption,
1: maybe. Sorry, maybe Uh, a lawyer will answer it for us. (laughs)
0: Yeah, if you're a lawyer, uh, send us an email and let us know what's <laughs> up. Um, so uh, Katzman, the prosecutor, Webster, Thayer, the judge, both returned for the Brown Tree trial. Again, the trial is a complete mess. Uh, witnesses changed their accounts. Um, they had one witness who, uh, on the day of the trial, looked at uh, Sacco and said, yeah, that's the man that I saw. But if you go back and read the inquest from before, um, she had described a totally different person. So obviously like she was changing her mm-hmm. testimony to fit what was in front of her and not uh, like using her testimony towards the truth. Um, material evidence was introduced that was possibly doctored. Uh, one important thing was Socko's, uh Socko owned a um, Colt uh, pistol. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, witnesses all called it a revolver. Not because it was a revolver, it was actually, uh, uh, what do you call it?
1: Like, automatic?
0: Not an automatic. I don't, did they don't, have automatics I don't then? know guns.
1: <laughs> I know what Colt is.
0: It was not a revolver, um, but they all described it as a an revolver, and uh, people are arguing, historians are arguing over whether it was actually a revolver or if they were just using that as shorthand for a pistol. Oh,
1: uh, okay.
0: Which, I think it's more syllables, so I don't know why you would <laughs> shorten it that way. Um, but there's, uh, at one point they found out that Sacco's pistol, uh, had been, uh, the barrel had been replaced in it, which is weird, and it had happened after it had gone into evidence, so somebody replaced the barrel, and then they had a ballistics test which confirmed that it was the same gun, but if the barrel can be switched out... Then... Yeah. And also, it might have been Sako's, like, pistol, but also... There's no evidence that he was the one who had it in his possession on the night of the crime or the murder or anything. Um,
1: Circumstantial evidence at Completely
0: circumstantial, yes. Um, So that's a big thing. Uh, You've still got uh, the judge who is anti-Italian and you've got the uh, prosecutor who is obviously working with the defense counsel. Um, So complete mess. Hot mess. Um, Hot mess. Um, Let's see. Again, witnesses were unable to accurately describe the suspects. Uh, However, on July 21st, 1921, both men were convicted of murder, uh, which in the state of Massachusetts was punishable by death. Um, Back
1: then, what was... Are you going to tell me how they died? Like, were they hung? Were they executed? Uh, I...
0: Didn't write that down, but I can look it up real quick. Okay. Okay. Let well, me get through the rest of this. I don't know that us. much. Yeah, yeah. And then we can <laughs> move on with it. Uh, let's see. Now we're going to come to our last character, who is the surprise witness who comes in in the third act in every trial movement. Oh, of course. Trial movement. This is a
1: book. In <laughs> yeah, a movie.
0: It's not a, not a book. In uh, well, a musical. Yeah. It will be one day. One day. Let's make it. We'll make it. <laughs> Um, so, our surprise third act character is a man by the name of Celestino Madieros. Uh Matieros was already on death row, he was a convicted uh, gang member, um, he was working with the Morelli crime gang, um, and he confessed the Rain Tree murder and robbery, testifying that he had carried out the robbery as part of the gang and that Sacco and he had nothing to
1: Jeez.
0: Which is great. What a great guy. Right? Yeah. It's great for them because, like, he's yeah. just coming in and saying they had nothing to do with yeah. it. It all me. Uh, the defense had already filed five motions for a new trial, all of which had been denied. And they uh, filed one appeal to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, which found no error in the original trial and allowed the sentence to continue. Uh, with Marriott, with Eros' confession, the defense attempted a final motion for a new trial. Guess what Judge Sayer said?
1: The same guy that we've had the last two times. Mm -hmm. What was his name again? Uh, Judge Thayer. Thayer, yeah, sorry. Guess what he said. He said guilty, and I'm going to not... I don't believe you. I think it's these two guys.
0: He denied another trial. He uh, said that um, the evidence from the first trial was... Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Um, The defense sent it to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts again, and they said that Judge Thayer was well within his right to... Uh, deny the um, the motion,
1: which is great. It's great.
0: Great. So um, in nineteen twenty seven, they're sentenced to death, and on August twenty second, Mattiello, Sacco, and Vanzetti were all executed. All three of them on the same day.
1: How much? Lo- how long were they? When? What year were they executed?
0: Nineteen twenty seven. Jeez so within the whole thing takes place over seven or eight
1: years yeah yeah for all those trials yeah
0: Um, so this sets off a series of violent demonstrations and bombings around the world anarchists are pissed they know how to make bombs and they start bombing uh, places like Buenos Aires the uh, American Embassy in Buenos Aires uh, New York Mm -hmm. Philadelphia Baltimore there are violent demonstrations in Geneva, London, Paris, and Amsterdam. Um, so all throughout the world. Heesh. anarchists just bombing all the shit oh. um, in retaliation. Um, and this uh, this is all within like this insurrectionary um, kind of theory of Luigi uh, Galliano. That's crazy. I know. So that is the story of sacco and vanzetti um and uh like i said i came to through kirk vonnegut yeah and uh the anniversary of their uh, execution was just uh, a couple months ago in august
1: all righty when you when you first started this podcast yes.
0: <laughs> which is uh how i was reminded of it yeah <laughs> Um, so, what are you doing? All
1: right, so, I mean, yours was a little sad. <laughs> Mine's not happy, but as Andrew knows, I am fascinated by presidents. Mm-hmm. Don't know why I'm fascinated by all these old white men. But um, <laughs> I started thinking about like lesser known presidents, people like most forgotten about presidents. Yeah. And this isn't the most forgotten about president by far, apparently, according to a lot of websites. It's Benjamin Harrison, because a lot of people don't know about that president. he's the 23rd president, but that's not important this is the last time I'll mention him. Um, one of the more interesting ones was one that Time Magazine mentioned to be the first truly, first truly forgettable American president. And that is, um, Martin Van Buren. And so I was like, I know who he is, but I don't know a lot about him. Right. So I did some research and I have to say, um, his story is somewhat fascinating, but, um, he seemed like he did more before his presidency than his actual presidency, okay. and we'll get to that. So, Martin Van Buren was the eighth president, mm-hmm. and he was president from 1837 to 1841, so that right there tells you he is a one-term president. I'll just start <laughs> off with that, like, disclaimer. He was born December 5th, 1782, so I want to give a little background, because I think his background's a little interesting. Actually, most of this stuff is not even resembling his presidency, but that's okay. okay. Um, he was the first president who had like no British or Britain blood in him. Okay. He was a descendant of Cornelius Mason of the village of Vermellesen in the Netherlands. And so his whole family, I think he was fifth or sixth generation Dutch in mm-hmm. New York, and they all, he lived in a neighborhood that was very heavily Dutch, like most boroughs and most, like, little subsects of New York, and so people spoke Dutch there fluently. Um, he turned out to be not a very tall man. He was only about five foot six, which, you know, is, like, significantly taller than me, though, so who cares? Um, he married his childhood sweetheart, Hannah Hose, who apparently was his cousin's child, which, I mean, it was the 1700s, so okay. Um... They had four sons, Abraham, John, Martin Jr., and Smith. And then, a little sad fact, in 1819, after 12 years of marriage, Hannah got tuberculosis and died. So he basically had four children under the age of 12 that he had to take care of. Oh, and she was only 35 at the time. Um, Some fun facts, he did have a lot of... um, nicknames for him, and uh-huh. I'll come to them as they go along, but one of the nicknames is Little Magician, and that was for his skill and wit, and for being the main man responsible for organizing the Democratic Party, and I'll go into that in a little bit.
0: Did they put that on his campaign posters? Vote for Little Magician? I
1: Actually, <laughs> no. They had another one. I'll tell you about that right. one later. Um, but the best part is the article went on to say sadly this magician ran out of tricks when he entered the office. Oh. <laughs> They were not a fan. (laughs) Um, So, like I said, um, him and Andrew Jackson are both considered, like, the founders of uh, the Democratic Party, but people really more point towards Van Buren Buren being the guy who started the two-party system and Mm -hmm. the Democratic Party, which the Democratic Party is the oldest still-standing party in the United States, Mm -hmm. as you probably know. So, Van Buren, like, went to politics at a very young age. Um, he he became a lawyer, did everything that all those people do. So in 1821, he was elected senator to New York, and he was senator there for up until 1828, when he was elected governor. Mm -hmm. Andrew, do you know how long he was governor for? Just under three months. Wow. Why you ask? Great question. (laughs) It's because Andrew Jackson had just been nominated president, and he made... Uh, Van Buren the Secretary of State. So he couldn't be Governor and Secretary of State. So he knew he was going to (laughs) be Secretary of State if Van Buren won. So he won the governorship, and then when he was appointed Secretary of State, he had to withdraw, like resign from being Governor and give it to the next guy. And they went on to become Secretary of State.
0: Did he want to be Secretary of State? Or was this like, you're doing this?
1: Um, No, it made it sound like they had a handshake behind uh, closed doors. From what I read, it made it sound like Um, Andrew Jackson said, if I win, you will be Secretary of State. Okay. So, they were BFFs. We'll get into that soon. Um, lost my spot, lost my spot. There we go. Um, he became a close advisor to Jackson. Um, you know how they have their cabinet. Mm -hmm. But they also have this thing called the kitchen cabinet for, for, like, the very close people where they would tell all their stuff to. Um, this is where, like, you start to hate Van Buren, not that... You know you loved him, but he agreed with Jackson on the Indian Removal Act. (sighs) You know, this will come back later. And for those those of you who don't know, the Indian Removal Act basically forcibly relocates Southern Native Americans out west from their actual homeland, mostly in the South. Good times. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. So that was 1828 to 1832. Was um, he was Secretary of State for only two years. And then, it's a long story, I'll have to get into that, because that would rule for like a Jackson uh, party for why he left being Secretary of State, but that's okay, because when Jackson ran again in 1832, Van Buren was on the ticket as Vice President. So when Jackson won by a landslide again, um, Van Buren became Vice President now. And so during his time as Vice President, he agreed with Jackson not to recharter the second bait. Second Bank of the United States, um, and this will come into play later in 1836, and that pissed off a lot of his opponents, because there's a lot of things that they didn't agree with how banking was be- being regulated or non-regulated, right. um, so Van Buren actually had physical threats of violence against him, so he started carrying around pistols around for protection, I guess there's no Secret Service back then, <laughs> <laughs> that was his only protection, I don't even know when the Secret Service started, to be honest, that was something I'll have to look into, Um, so there have been several stories about during his time in the Senate and as Vice President, how he was known for any intention during meetings, and how he was good at not getting too involved with non-governmental issues like infidelity and things like that. He, like, really did not give a shit about that, and he just, like, would back away from that, Mm. and that was kind of, like, his way of never stepping on too many toes. Not that he didn't, because he did. Um... So, in 1836, like, every president after um, Jackson, after two terms, not that there was a rule or anything, was like, no, I'm done. Right. Um, I feel like after anyone being eight years, president, president's like, this is horrible. I am (laughs) out of here. Um, so, Jackson steps down after his two terms and obviously hands over the Democratic Party uh, ticket to Van Buren, because he thinks he'll, like, help him in the Jacksonian era democracy that was going on at that time. Right. Uh... And I can't lose my spot There you go So here we go um, So the whole election In the, of itself wasn't that interesting hmm. Except for one thing Was very fascinating to me So um, Van Buren chose Richard Johnson as his vice presidential Candidate and did you know that Richard Johnson Was from Kentucky by the way? I did not he was buried in Frankfurt, and um, I'm
0: a Yankee for anyone who can't tell.
1: <laughs> but I was like, <laughs> I have literally lived in Kentucky almost my entire life. I've never heard of this man. Right. Technically, he was born. They said in Fayette County, which is near Lexington, Kentucky, mm-hmm. but it was still Virginia at the time. But while growing up, it became Kentucky, okay. or like he's considered from Kentucky. Um, so picks Johnson as his vice president. Well, Van Buren, he wins with over 50% of the vote, 170 electoral votes. That's all grand, you know, good. Um, However, Johnson, his vice presidential running mate, um, had 147 electoral votes, which isn't horrible. It was 70 more than the next guy behind him. However... um, that was still technically one elector short of having what you're supposed to have so they were supposed to have 148 to actually win. Now, why did why was it 147 and 170? What? <laughs> Turns out this is because Virginia's electors who were loyal to Van Buren mm-hmm. voted for him, but all 23, all 23 of them refused to vote for Johnson. They abstained. What? Yes. <laughs> Not even shooting you. It's crazy. This is the most fascinating part of the story. <laughs> it's not even to do with Van Buren. Um, so they abstain. And, like, why did they abstain? It's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> there was a rumor. There are a couple of things. One that's kind of um, there was a rumor that Johnson had personally killed the Native American leader, Tamoosh. Tecumseh during the War of 1812, but another one that kept popping up more so was that it was very well known that his common law wife was Octaroon, and as someone who was not familiar with that, I had to Google it, and it's that she's one eighth flat. Yes. Uh, and I was like, are you shitting me? But then I know it's like 1830s or whatever, and it's common law wife because they can't get married. Right. Um, and there were other like side notes that he had. Affairs or relationships after his wife died, or something, with um, mixed or African Americans. So you know that is literally the fucking reason why all these Virginians abstain. <laughs> the electors, the electors abstain. Like what? A f- Ugh! It gets me so pissed when I think about it. But
0: America is built on uh, racism, <laughs> folks.
1: <laughs> so, side note: these people are called faithless electors. Mm-hmm. And in our short history as a country, there have only been 157 electors, or 0.67%, have voted against their party or abstained. (laughs) 71 of those 157 couldn't pick because their candidate had died between the popular (laughs) vote and the electoral college vote. (laughs) So like almost half of them couldn't vote for a person because they were already dead. (laughs)
0: Functional country.
1: (laughs) Um, However, what's really fascinating about this is that (laughs) this was the one election where it's noted in history where faithless electors actually made a difference. Oh, yeah. Dot, dot, dot. Or they at least tried because since neither one of them got the majority, then it went to the Senate, and Johnson still ended up winning 33 to 17. Okay. But they could have. This is the one time where faithless electors, I know... Your brain is turning, <laughs> so it can happen, people. I'm telling you, electors can make a difference. But so far, this is the only one where it could have actually made a difference. Because usually it's just one elector in each, um, like, state. This was all of them. Wow. Um, so now, you know, okay, so now we're actually getting to the Vampire presidency. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, and his VP, Johnson, who doesn't really come into play that much, to be honest. Um... Here you go. So Van Buren, his presiden- presidency was mostly remembered for an economic crisis spawned on by banks offering easy credits while benefiting from little or no regulation. Sound familiar? That's always a great idea, <laughs> right? That hasn't <laughs> happened since then, has it? Never. None it was like called <laughs> called the Panic of 1836. Shouldn't been called the Panic of 2008. Was <laughs> it? Wasn't. It's called the Panic of 1836. This financial crisis caused a recession lasting five years. That's also eerily familiar. Um, And so, this is probably the main reason, if not the sole reason, he did not win again. Hmm. Um, In eighteen, and here's coming back to the Indian Removal Act in eighteen thirty eight. He directed General Winfield Scott to forcefully remove all of the Cherokee who had not complied with the Treaty of 18, 1835, stating for them to move out west, i.e. Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, because I kind of looked into it, but I don't have it all remembered, but basically the Cherokee Nation tried to like, build their own nation where yeah. they were, and so they stay there, but then Van Buren comes in and basically says, no, you have to get out And there. Um, this removal is still considered part of the Trail of Tears in twenty. 20- thousand, um, Cherokees were basically relocated out west. Jesus. During Van Buren's presidency, there were 19 treaties with Native Americans, and I did not have the time to look up what those treaties entail, but I'm like, 19 out of four years? Yeah. Come on.
0: How many of those did we break? Uh, I,
1: I told you, I hadn't looked up, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, he had to deal with the Mormons.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The governor of Missouri... I love this name. Lilburn Boggs. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what it said. <laughs> I need to recheck. But Boggs, we'll go with that. Um, he issued an executive order that he called the Extermination Order. What? <laughs> That's not a horrible name. Um, yeah, no, he called it the Extermination Order, using the army to forcefully move the Mormons west. Excuse me. Yes. I don't know why you call it extermination order, but they exterminating them from the state of Missouri, I guess. Isn't that crazy? So Joseph Smith, Jr., at the time, went to the president for help, but apparently there was, the president responded with, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. If I help you, I will lose the vote of Missouri. So, spoken like a true president. <laughs> it wasn't all bad, though, <laughs> the Van Buren presidency. Um, he diffused two crises with Great Britain involving Canada. I kind of read into it a little bit. Uh-huh. It, it got a little confusing, I'm not going to lie, but apparently there was some strife going up on in Canada. And basically, um, like I said, he was known for this in the Senate, and like as vice president, Like he's really good at like relaxing things mm-hmm. or like making tensions, like diffusing tensions, and he somehow did that with like what was going on in Canada. And like, it was the border between Canada and America. Yeah in those two crises, and then um he convinced southerners a big thing with jackson and with his presidency was that was the whole texas um trying to buy or get texas from mexico and then trying southerners trying to make it a slave state and in the beginning of his like life and presidency and all that stuff from what i read van buren was like in the middle on slavery as well as i can put that like he was fine with the south keeping slaves but then no one else could and that's why he was very very um like waiting on texas cuz he didn't want the south to get it he was like trying to get it so the union could get it so it wouldn't become a slave state and also that but the bigger part too i think for him was he didn't want to start a war with mexico right. cuz they still weren't like letting up on texas so he was able to ease tensions with the south saying like we're going to get it don't worry we're just not getting it yet and so um he was able to haul that off um so he ran for president again mm-hmm. in 1840 for the next term and do you know who easily defeated him in 1841 who
0: do you know no. okay i can't <laughs> In you, a, out. you in, a, in a huge <laughs> defeat
1: it was this guy won 234 electoral votes to van buren 60. and it was Dang. Our shortest serving president, William Henry Harrison <laughs> Who died of pneumonia. <laughs> um so then Harrison's uh, VP mm-hmm. Tyler took over, so I mean what a like huge win and then you Catch a cold. Give me <laughs> too long of an acceptance speech. That's
0: <laughs> why so you should keep your acceptance speeches short. Yeah, right? thank Firm you sweet. and walk off.
1: <laughs> um, but that's really all that they kind of divulge into mm. with Van Buren's presidency. Even I like, went and got my AP history book from way back in high school, yeah. and there was only a paragraph wow. on Van Buren's presidency. They cared more about Andrew Jackson and then what happens afterwards. Like, literally.
0: I guess Andrew Jackson was like pure evil. Martin Van Buren seems like only a little bit evil. Yeah, so. yeah. I was about to say, when you <laughs> compare the two, it's like, oh, I'll take
1: this one. Right. <laughs> um, he did run again in 1844 and 1848. Clearly didn't win. Right. He went back to uh, serve in the state senate for a couple years. Um, in old age, he apparently became a hardcore abolitionist, though. Like, he was like, a, something happened and he's like no slavery is horrible we need to end this right now fuck yeah and um he supported Lincoln full when he ran for president and he did a lot of advocacy stuff he joined like a free soil party type um I think that's what he ran with in 1848 which clearly didn't win mm. um so he did change some of his minds or at least more steadfast than like uh what's right, right. um I was trying to think of the word progressive oh, and that yeah. just came to mind um uh, and other than that, he died in 1862 at the age of 79, and he died from complications of pneumonia, like a no, lot of older just, people did. I mean, even no, now. it's
0: just like knocking out everybody. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so there, I I have a couple more things. Now. Okay. I have some some fun facts about some Van Buren. Facts. Um, oh, I just remembered that part. So the first one is, okay, yeah, the financial crisis is not helping. Another thing that apparently people that the his opponents used against him was mm. that he would he lived like kind of an extravagant life. Oh yeah. Like he wore very fancy clothes and like the stuff he had in the White House were very was very elegant and very nice and so people saw that as like uppity and I'm better than you and so they used that against him his opponents and it worked very well I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, the History Channel I watched a little clip on this quoted him as the first pers- professional politician, which I fucking hate that phrase because he was basically the first one that started off doing like rallies, making rounds around the country, giving speeches, mm-hmm. doing all that kind of stuff more so, in like how it's viewed today. I mean, not to the exact degree, but do you kind of know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, it wouldn't let me watch the whole video to show exactly how they were saying it either, so <laughs> I'll go with that. Okay. Um, he was the first president born in the United States after the Declaration of Independence. He was born just six years afterwards, so fun. And that young <laughs> Yes, he was responsible for painting the Blue Room blue in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> and here comes another nickname. So one of his most well-known nicknames is Old Kinderhook, and that's because he was from Kinderhook, New York. Okay.
0: Um, young Kinderhook.
1: Yeah, (laughs) he was young Kinderhook in Old Kinderhook at some point. Um, So he got the nickname Old Kinderhook, and during his um, election, it was shortened to OK, referring to Van Buren as a trusted candidate who was (laughs) OK. And actually, history has said this is the reason why we use OK, because it had been used for this election. What? I'm not shitting you. Like, historians actually say it. Like, I saw three or four sources say, the reason we use okay today is because of this. Old Kinderhook is what okay stands for, not O-K-A-Y. He's okay. He's okay. He'll do. He'll
0: do.
1: (laughs) Um, The last thing I just want to say is, you just got to Google his picture. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm not one to make fun of what someone looks like, but Andrew, you got to look at his face. (laughs) Like... I don't know how else to describe... All right, let me look at images. I don't... Like, he looks like Einstein's father. <laughs> his hair, it just needs to be combed. Every, every single picture, his hair is literally out.
0: <laughs> he looks like a Harry Potter character. <laughs> he does
1: look like a Harry Potter character. Who
0: is, like, disappointed in Harry Potter's He's like, actions. like, I
1: thought you could do better. Yes. I mean, that's his most famous picture, and I don't know why. <laughs> I feel bad, <laughs> but anyways. So I hope you learned a little something about Martin Van Buren. I learned a little bit, yeah. It was Maybe really... more about faithless electors. <laughs> uh, we need more of those. <laughs> But yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So now I know way more about him now too.
0: Great, awesome. Do you want to wrap up now, or do you want have anything else to say?
1: No, that's all I got to say about Martin Van Buren. <laughs>
0: cool. Um, where can listeners find you on Twitter? I don't really. You don't use Twitter. I'll,
1: I'll I'll get one started. I'll get okay. one started.
0: Cool. Um, all right. Uh, well, if you want to follow me, you? Yeah. if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, my handle is at awmwrites. Um, go follow me. Uh, buy my book. Um, give me money. All of that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your book? It's uh, called In the Shadows of My Mind. It's a Southern noir about an FBI agent with dissociative identity disorder or what's commonly known as multiple personalities. Um, Also, uh, we're going to put up a website, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's uh, arts activism, no, uh, absent activism arts. I like that. And we'll have like uh, biographies, uh, some of my writing, um, some of Photography, anything.
1: Yeah.
0: Anything we want to put up that yeah. is art or activism related. Um, anything else?
1: No, I think this is a good like first go at it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I hope you all enjoyed our pilot, and uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll talk to you next time.
1: Something different. Something different. New and exciting.